Hi, I'm Franz Lanzinger, programmer of Atari's Crystal Castles, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May and I'm here as ever with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And the author of Missile Commander, Tony Temple. Hi. Our interviewee for this episode, Franz Lanzinger, not only violated the fundamental rules of Atari's Toyer's Law, but also utilised some unorthodox programming techniques to bring us the company's singular, Crystal Castles. Franz talks to us, of course, about Crystal Castles but also about being the person to establish the long overdue display of creator credits in video arcade games. Meeting none other than avid arcade gamer and occasional film director Steven Spielberg, and then quitting Atari in a fit of pique after a dispute with management about creator royalties. As ever, thank you for listening. We really do appreciate it, and we're always humbled that our listener numbers continue to grow. We remain a toll-free listen, but if you fancy buying us a Christmas beer, you can do so at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash TDE podcast. And you can check out all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit classicarcademuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Welcome to the show, friends. Um, our podcast focuses on games from the golden age of arcades, and we understand before you started making them at Atari, you're a huge fan of those classic titles. So, so tell us, friends, about your misspent youth pumping quarters into coin-ups. Oh, yes, a whole lot of quarters. So, um, yeah, I basically started with uh, Pong uh, back in 70-something, 73, 74. And uh, I would go to Fat Wally's uh, Pizza Place, um, when, I, when I was in college studying mathematics and uh, we would go there once a week and play pinball but every now and then some video game would show up so we'd, uh, me and my buddies we'd play Pong or we'd play Breakout when, later on when that came out mm. and of course a whole lot of pinball we were, we were basically into pinball what were your favorite pinball games friends? oh uh, I guess Amigo it was <laughs> this is not a very well known one but oh, uh, um, Amigo yeah no it's just uh, this is a a pinball machine that was in the basement of my dorm hmm. and uh it was very simple but uh we found out uh that you could get free credits on this machine by lifting it and dropping it <laughs> so <laughs> so we'd put 25 credits on that machine and play for hours it's crazy and and w- tell me sorry rem- uh, the, the name of the pizza joint restaurant place you you mentioned what was the name of that fat freddy's was it? uh fat fat wally's fat wally's fat wally's, fat wally's <laughs> is no longer exists unfortunately but uh, it was uh, a bar pizza joint uh, near near the college campus and it was a it was a place we could get beer there was no beer for sale on on campus but fat wally's was very very nearby 
So do any of those arcades still exist, friends, or are they all long gone? Oh, that's all long gone. Right, that's right, it. right, right. It's not not even the later on when I um, got more serious with video games. There were arcades in uh, here in Silicon Valley in Sunnyvale, yeah, and Mountain Mountain View. Um, None of them exist, with the exception of Golfland, which is a uh, miniature golf course. Oh, okay. And, and they had a nice arcade as part of it, and they still do. They still have uh, arcade machines in there, but it's nothing like it once was. It's just no, some redemption right. ticket uh, machines, and there's, there's no there's no fun old arcade games in there anymore, unfortunately. Nah, sure, sure, sure. So, I mean, how, how did playing arcade games, friends, lead to you uh, landing a job at Atari? You know that's a that's a weird story. I uh, basically became friends with a bunch of uh, very good players. Some of them became quite famous. Eric Jenner is probably the most famous. Uh, he had multiple world records, and uh, Mark Rob- Mark Robichek also had had uh, he had the Frogger world record from like a couple of decades, I think. Right, right. Um, and um, yeah, and a bunch of other guys, and they were all very very good. I was probably the worst one of the bunch. <sighs> Because mainly because I was the the oldest, <laughs> I was I was twenty five and they were all twenty one or seventeen or something. So you okay, fine. So you 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 were hanging out with these guys back then. Yeah, and yeah. So we we became good friends. We still are friends. Uh, many many years later, and uh, it just kind of happened that um, one of the players, his name is Brian McGee. Right. Uh, he got uh, recruited by Atari to you know evaluate one of the games. Um, one of the one of the field test games, right? And yeah. he he ended up going to the Atari uh, building, which was only about five miles away. And he ended up getting hired They're almost on the spot. I think they hired him on the spot um, because he was so good. Uh, because he had the uh, he had uh, software engineering background, the perfect software engineering background, and he was an avid arcade player. And so through him, uh, he got me the interview, and then. Just two months after that, I, I got uh, hired by Atari as well. Right, so he was he was. You got to check out my mate Franz as well. Get get this guy in. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, he said, oh yeah, he's it. he might be good for you. So, yeah, I I kind of kind of got lucky being at the right spot at the right time. I didn't really think that Atari would be hiring or that I would have any kind of shot at working there, but it's it yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, Atari obviously can't only have been impressed by by your love of their products so what else were you bringing to the table friends you did did you have a solid educational background in coding presumably well it's kind of weird i i studied math in uh, as an undergraduate and then went to graduate school in math as well and yeah. then dropped out and became a software engineer overnight basically uh, i had taken some coding courses uh, as a as a student but i wasn't you know in computer science that really didn't even exist back then. This was 1977, and uh, they, the colleges, most colleges did not have a computer science department, including uh, my university. All they had is uh, electrical engineering, and they did a little bit of coding um, for for the students, but it was it was not a, a degree that you could get at that time. Right. Uh, but uh, I knew Fortran, and uh, this this company uh, wanted to hire me uh, because. Uh, I knew Fortran, and because I had this solid math background, was, they hired me because of my math. And so that's how I ended up being a coder for, I think, uh, just three years. So for three years, I was uh, uh, employed as a software engineer and then got hired at Atari after that. So did you, I mean, prior to Atari, did you did you even dabble in any in any kind of, I don't know, did you make your own little homebrew games or anything like that? Or no, oddly, no, oddly enough, I right. did not. No, I, I didn't really have access 
to the right machines. I didn't own an Apple II or a Commodore or uh, anything like okay, that. Sure. I didn't have yeah, those yeah. At, at home. I, I just I used some fairly high end, uh, um, you know, expensive computers, and I connected to them using the ARPANET, which later became the Internet. Uh -huh. So, yeah, so yeah. that's that. That was my work. Is uh, I would uh, use mainframe. I was coding on mainframes rather than on personal computers. All right. So hang on, friends. So you you were coding and you were proficient, yeah. obviously, in, in in that code. But you yeah. you had literally no experience of making a game. So was that liberating right. or terrifying when you got to Atari? Or oh, I thought oh that'll be easy. That's not a problem. Not, not, <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I was not I was not worried about it, and uh, and rightfully so, I guess, because my very first game. Uh, got manufactured, which was very unusual. There was a, a, a toy. It's called Toyer's Law. Yeah. Toyer's Law or Toyer's Law? We've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that yeah. says your first game is bad and it's not going to get produced. So just just a little bit of positioning for our for our listeners, and we we have discussed this on previous episodes. But Toyer's yeah. Law is named after Dave Toyer, yes. uh, programmer of Missile. Yeah. Uh, Tempest and Missile Command. Tempest and Missile Command and iRobot. Which, and uh, iRobot, of course. Yeah, yeah. those yeah. are the three big ones for him. Yeah, and t Tony, do you want to jump in here and maybe elaborate a little more on a little more on um, aforementioned Toys Law? Toys Law. Well, yeah, it, um, I, I, I think I'm right, friends, in saying that this came about because the theory was, as a as a new programmer at Atari, your first coin-operated game would be a disaster, and it it. it it, it wouldn't stack up, it would fail out on test and it, it would never get released. And so yes. you would go on to write another one to improve on, improve on what you learnt. Um, yes. However, one of the few programmers at Atari to whom that didn't apply was Dave Toyer, who, of course, wrote um, <laughs> Atari Soccer, which was released. And so I believe that's how the, the moniker Toyer's Law came about. Because Oh, I didn't know that history. Wow, okay. I was, supposedly because Dave Toyer's game was so because Dave Toy's first game did get released oh, and, okay. was a, and was a moderate su success. So it's, it's kind of a, an irony. I'd, yeah. I'd say you'd shattered that law because yours was far more, <laughs> far bigger success than Atari Soccer. So well done, you. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. We'll, 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 we'll get to that. We'll get, we'll, we'll be, yes. not to jump ahead to, I yeah. was going to ask actually, uh, was there much of an induction process? But it kind of sounds like you just kind of knocked it out the park from the off. I mean, Am I? We not? We allocated a mentor or anything like this, or you just no. thrown into the deep end? Or no, I was thrown into the deep end. I basically got uh, one month uh, where I had no hardware of my own. All right. Um, and uh, the first thing was to assign me to a project, and so we uh, came up with a project for me to work on. And then it took uh, the hardware guys about a month to get me something to work on. And during that time, I used Fortran, oddly enough, oh, okay. to uh, do some just test programming, just to get used to the, they had uh, some pro, uh, some computers that, for me to learn and to use. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was all done with terminals. So we didn't have personal computers. Those didn't really exist yet. Uh, we just had, uh, uh, well, that's not, that's not true. Personal ex computers existed, but they weren't very good. So, sure, sure. so we used terminals connecting, connecting to a VAX, uh, sort of a mini computer uh, that was uh, quite high end, uh, probably cost a million dollars or something. But everybody used that same machine simultaneously, all the 20 or 30 programmers. Mm. So uh, the typical way that you would uh, write your game is you would edit your code, you type it in, and then you'd say, compile it. And then you'd have to wait two, three, four minutes for it to compile. 
which is actually uh, assemble. So it was all in assembly language. It would do the assembly of that code that you wrote. And yep. then you would download it, which took another minute, download it into your hardware, and then you could play the game. Which, to be fair, even by modern standards, and, and, and obviously, you know, kind of exponentially, you know, <laughs> yeah, th things are bigger, as it were. But, like, that's not really a long time to wait, really, is it? You know what I mean? No, it's not. Am I wrong? It's not. No, no, you're, you're quite right. Uh, it's quite... In those days, it was uh, possible, and forever, that, right? <laughs> that it would take an hour or something. Yeah, sure. Or sure. if you worked on a large project at a, you know, at a non-game company, you, you're working on some, some big database thing or whatever it is. Yeah. But uh, for me, that was it. Still, was forever. I, I was way ahead of, the, of my time at that point because I wanted, I wanted to do quick turnaround. I wanted to write my code, test it three seconds later, and. Uh, Make some changes, compile it again, and uh, test it again three seconds later, which is can be done now. But in those days, for me, five minutes, or three minutes, whatever it was, was was too long. Well, you know what that le that leads me to ask, Franz. I mean, what were you? Were you a doodler, or were you, were you rolling joints? What what? No. How were you killing those four minutes at Atari while your code was compiling? Oh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, th I it's kind of it's kind of hard to do anything useful in just two three minutes. Uh, I I do remember walking down the hall and playing Xevious oh, uh, at at one yeah, point. Yeah. I, I would I, you know I'd start I'd start the compile and download and I'd run down the hall. I'd play Xevious for three, four, ten minutes, however long it was. Then I go back and and yeah. you guys were kind of like you know kind of popping over to other desks, weren't you, and playing other other other, other programmers' games? Oh yes, and, yeah, and, and yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so that that was really what made Atari work so well and produce so many good games. Yes, is that uh, we were all in the same building and uh, we were talking to each other all the time about our games and uh, yeah, and we we're testing each other's games. So that that was very useful. Yeah. So on that note, I mean, you know, what was it like working alongside some of the people that made the games you love playing in the arcade? They do say, don't meet your heroes. What what was that like? Oh, they were great. Uh, I really right. got along well with all of them. So that was, that was the best part of it, really. They're one of the first companies that had a lunchroom for their employees. You know, that was unusual in those days. There would be a long skinny table and we just sit down and uh, we could we'd have uh, we'd be within earshot of uh, at least 15 other people usually yeah. when we're sitting there you know i relived that just a month ago because it's been 50 years since atari coin op was formed and, sure. and there was a reunion yeah. in a, at a park here in san jose yeah and uh, we actually had a long skinny table and some of the people sitting there <laughs> Were uh, were with me uh, way back uh, in forty years ago, including Dave Toyer, who was there. He, he was, uh, he was the, re the reclusive Dave Toyer. Yeah, yeah not, he was not not to be the lesser spotted Dave Toyer. Yeah, yeah, he's, and uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fun to catch up with a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of old timers there. That was that was great. Um. Friends, so we still an avid gamer. Once you were working at Atari, did did or, or or did working on games just make you think, Christ, I just I don't want to sit in front of playing anything else other than what I'm actually coding here. No, no, that's the opposite. So I I was totally wrapped up in the video games. You know, when I wasn't working, I was playing video games, and that's my awesome. that was my life. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I I uh, I've said this before in other interviews, but uh, I. Uh, I think I estimated that I spent $2,000 of my own money uh, in arcades <laughs> playing games. 
Uh, Did you get paid enough at Atari to cover your game playing expenses? Yeah, right? oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't have time <laughs> to spend my money, you know. So I, right, I, I got I got a a pretty average uh, salary for those days for a software engineer. It was sure. nobody was getting sure. you know five times what a normal salary would be. It was everybody. You know, I don't know for sure, but I think everybody got a comfortable salary enough to uh, you know pay the rent or pay the mortgage. And, uh, okay, fine. Nobody, I, nobody was pulling around the back in nine elevens or, or, or Ferraris or anything. No, like no, I never saw, I never saw any uh, outrageous cars. Maybe, maybe Nolan. Although Nolan would be long gone. He was by gone then, by then. Yeah, they? yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, well, you know, I, um, I did get a, a bonus. Uh, I'll, I'll reveal this. Uh, I got a bonus check of, uh, I think twenty six thousand dollars, which was a lot of money back in, in mm. those days. I think that's it's a fair whack now, friends. <laughs> that was that was. Uh, for Crystal Castle, so the Crystal Castle sales. Oh right, sure, uh, sure. about it took s- six months after Crystal Castle was released that I got this check, and oh, I, this this is bizarre. I took the check and and I got it on a Friday and I couldn't deposit it, and I was <laughs> and I was going on a ski uh, trip that weekend. So what do right. I do with this check? Oh my God, it's a big check. Uh, so <laughs> so I ended up hiding it in a. <laughs> Like box of. I love this. It's like as if you lost it and they couldn't cut you another one. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, I was I was young and naive. I had no idea how any of this worked. So, yeah. So I took this check and I hid it in my kitchen in a box of cereal or something, <laughs> and and went and went skiing and then uh, very nervously deposited it on Monday. And then I wasted over half of it on a car. I bought a new car, uh, a Toyota Celica. It cost fourteen thousand dollars. Which was uh, for me that was like a high end sports car, but it wasn't really. It was just a slightly more expensive car than what I was driving. Right, right. And uh, and I drove that car for fifteen years, so you know that was not really wasted money. That was a good. Oh, well that was a you. good yeah, car. You got, you, you got your mileage. Out <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah I sure, did. sure. Yeah, so, cool. And so, I, I just just going back to that collaborative atmosphere you mentioned you know you all sit around the table eating lunch together yeah. and as you say you know kind of you know kind of getting ideas from each other and all this kind of thing and atari's you know w- well known for its um highly collaborative working oh, yeah. environment so and and as you say you were you were a keen video game player regardless of your daytime job so did you presumably hit the arcades the local arcades with with your colleagues to check out the competition no no not with my colleagues oh, uh, uh, with okay. with my friends so my my group of friends who uh you know i i had known for three four years at that time okay uh, yeah we were still we had a sort of a standing uh, date uh, not really date but you know every tuesday night every tuesday night it was family night at pizza hut and we, we the pizza was cheaper on tuesday night for some reason mm-hmm. and so yeah. we would show up there we would play games at a at a nearby arcade then we'd all go out uh, go out and have pizza and then we'd go back to the arcade and play some more and this this was like every Tuesday we did this for many many years, even after I left Atari. That must have been really cool for them that one that their best buddy was actually working at Atari. Yeah, you know they didn't care. <laughs> you know they fine. Sure, sure. They they cared more about what what uh, what are the new games and what scores they were getting. That that was the thing. As it should be. Yeah. As it should yeah. be. Okay, uh, friends, I'm going to hand you over to Paul, and he's going to talk about um, the game we've already touched upon uh, briefly, which is Crystal Castles. Um, Franz, you've talked about settling in uh, at Atari. Yeah. Once you had found your feet, were you just left to come up with a game concept 
on your own or, or were you handed the the famous book of approved game ideas and say and told to pick one how did it work that's the the latter so you yeah. know you can't just show up as a new employee and uh, and just start uh, making a new game without approval so i had to i had to choose uh, one of the projects in from the approved projects folder which I wish it still existed somewhere. I, I don't. I don't know if it does. <laughs> yes, a real bit that of history. Would, that yeah. would be that would be a great collector's item, wouldn't it? Uh, but yeah, it was in, right in there. It was called Toporoids, and it, it was uh, okay. some something that was brainstormed. Uh, I don't know six months earlier, and it was basically a three D asteroids. So the the okay. idea was to to ha- have a game that's three D asteroids where you have a spaceship and you shoot things, but you have a topological map using a vector display okay um so it's kind of like tempest in a way um right and you would uh shoot things and um basically you shoot you shoot the alien spaceships and they try to shoot you and so that's basically it that's for it's, it's what i remember about that project and but uh, i'm interested that it was in three it was in 3d then so what was the idea that you would navigate around some kind of 3d shape well i imagine crystal castles mm-hmm. uh one of those levels okay and, yeah. and uh it would be uh, a vector display so you wouldn't have the color wouldn't be filled in with colors you would have just the edges displayed on a vector display and uh, your spaceship would would fly on the walls or on the tops Okay. Okay. <laughs> and and you'd shoot. I mean, you'd shoot bullets, and the bullets would basically kind of hug the topology of the of the levels, okay. and would eventually well, hit something. Okay. Did you did you actually sort of mock that up? Did that did that concept get anywhere? No. So what uh. basically what happened is I wanted to do crystal castles or something very. I oh, already right. had the idea <laughs> of uh, what crystal castles would be. What what, what would end up, end up as crystal castles? Oh. And so this was the closest project to that, and uh, so they said, "Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. This we'll just we'll just take this project and we'll change it." And so that's what happened. <laughs> that was clever. Yeah, that was clever as a new employee. So right, so I'm interested that you you'd got this concept of 3D before you then flicked through the book and saw, oh, here's something that's 3D. So I wondered where was that coming from? Because most arcade games at that point were were not in 3D. So is this a childhood? Playing with 3D models or something? Well, yeah. I mean, I've been interested in 3D ever since high school or something. Um, and being in math and there's, there's a lot of 3D in, in, in math in general. Okay. And uh, I actually had a 3D project as a senior in college. So this was in 1977 wow. uh, okay. where I had a project where I just uh, used a line printer to print out 3D cubes. It's kind of like Minecraft. It kind of looked like Minecraft if you stretch, <laughs> stretch it a little wow. bit. And uh, okay. it, it was just a, a short program that would display, uh, I think it was a donut used, made out of cubes, basically. That's all it was. Wow. So, wow. So you, you invented Minecraft. That's yeah, I did. In 77. I, I, In the 70s. Yes, they, right. definitely. <laughs> Just took them a while to catch up. So, so I'm interested that you've got this You've got this idea of doing 3D uh, games. Because they were a bit new, was there any any resistance for management when you started to take this Project Toproids into your kind of 3D block way? Uh, uh, w- w- were they funny about that at all? No, no, not at all. Because 3D was, uh, was definitely coming and, and they had already done battle zone battle zone this was yeah. done two years earlier and that was person. that was pretty pretty much 3d or tempest was going on at that time 
And so, uh, yeah, yeah, 3D was fine. Uh, what they did have trouble with is the trackball. <laughs> ah. I loved I loved my trackball, you know, because I played a lot of uh, Centipede and uh, and Missile Command, which are trackball games. So uh, I wanted to have a trackball. That, that was my favorite control. And that, that kind of bit me uh, later on because um, trackballs were basically phased out because so many uh, games like Pac-Man and many, many other games we use joysticks, so they wanted to standardize on joystick controls. And, of course. And so it was... But do you think the game... I mean, to be fair, if you'd done it with a with a joystick, I suppose it would have been easier, you know, with hindsight, to convert it to kind of home systems, which became a big thing. But you, yeah. you must have insisted on the trackball then. Do you think that was key in terms of how Crystal Castles ended up playing? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the game had a trackball front right from the start and uh, that's basically how it evolved and you know over the course of a year of development you know you'd make little changes and it would start feel feel good feel good the way you feel you control the character and so uh the whole game was built around that trackball and at toward the end it was difficult to switch back to a trackball the management uh, switch back to a joystick so they wanted me to do it and in fact they made me they insisted that i make a joystick version which i did oh okay so i had bentley bear controlled with a joystick okay and uh it, it didn't play very well it, the game didn't wasn't fun it wasn't fun to did play. it actually go out on test then did you no no we we uh, we all looked at it and said yeah, this is not fun we didn't we didn't <laughs> okay. bother putting it on test we we could see it so okay. that was about two two weeks wasted. Basically. Well, there you go. So at least, like you say, you tried the concept; it didn't we work. We tried it. Let, yeah. Let's go back. Yeah. yeah, let's go back to the the three D uh, element. How do you how did you go about creating those those very distinctive three D levels for Crystal Castles? Were you were you sketching them out on paper, or how did it work? So that was a kind of an odd way that I made those levels. Um, I started, you know, when I started at Atari, I started using Fortran at this testing uh, things with Fortran. And I ended up creating data using Fortran code to make these levels. Mm -hmm. So the so I would have like a Fortran subroutine for making a stair, uh, making a staircase. I had another Fortran subroutine that oh. would make a dome. So the, there's one level that has a dome that yes, has a very, yeah. it, it's yeah. a realistic looking dome more or less. That's because Fortran does the correct mathematical calculations to uh, create Ooh. the create that dome. Yeah, so, Doom's Dome. The I Doom's think Dome. That's, level that's is, right. That, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so the you know, in retrospect, what should have been done is make a nice level editor. That's how you would do it these days. Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, but no, no, no. That was not in our in our brains at that time. So. It, it, it sounds like your mathematical background yes. influenced the the actual shape. Of the level. Oh, yes. Would that be fair? Yes, yes. Well, especially Doomstone. Fascinating. <laughs> but, uh, and then the other thing is that I was influenced by Escher. Uh, so, oh, yes. so, there, so there's a level called the uh, Impossible Staircase, uh, which is a yeah. later level of uh, in the game. Okay. And it's basically inspired by one of the Escher drawings. Yeah, those kind of optical illusions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, okay. So you're creating these beautiful shapes on screen, but of course you need a game to go uh, yeah. to go with that. At what point was the idea of collecting collecting gems? Was that something that was there right from the start? Uh, pretty early on. Uh, they weren't called gems at the beginning. I think 
It was inspired by Pac-Man. It's basically, uh, you know, Pac-Man. Right. Pac-Man. And- you're very, you're very honest. I was going to mention <laughs> his Pac-Man influence. So you're very honest. That was clearly yeah. It, that came first, and then the calling in gems that came out of the theming. <laughs> the theming of the game didn't come until uh, a few months later. Okay. So tell, what was the original theme? Was there an original theme of the game? Yeah. So there was an original theme, but you know, not much thought went into it. So the original character was uh, an, a space alien that kind of looked a lot like E.T. And this is before oh, E.T. Okay. was uh, was out, you know. This, uh, I had never seen So e. let's just clarify. You invented Minecraft and then you invented E.T. Yes, I did, yes. Okay, you're, you're constantly, <laughs> constantly. So there was a little, a, there was an alien on the, that, w- that would walk around collecting dots. Well, so. the alien was weird. He had, he didn't have legs. He had a uh, sort of an upside down cone so that, that would end up in a point on the play field. So, um, so that way you would know exactly where that character was and you could uh, then use it to pick up the dots. Oh, I see. I suppose that's used in 3D if you can be absolutely clear which bit you're you're touching in terms of the yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I suppose that makes sense. So, the, yeah. so what happened to the alien? Aliens are popular. What happened to, why did he go? Well, at some point, our whole the whole team of about five six people, we had a meeting, and we the purpose of the meeting is to come up with a coherent theme for the game, which didn't ex- didn't exist at that point. All there was was some levels, some uh, dots to pick up uh, a character that you know was just mm-hmm. a um, a character that we would probably throw away. So um, yeah, so we were just brainstorming ideas, and eventually uh, we uh, decided on having the main character be a bear and uh, have a sort of a fairy tale theme with a witch and trees, okay, and uh, and honey honey pots and that sort of thing. That's, I mean, I must say, a bear doesn't naturally scream hero. Um, no, so <laughs> really, well, I would, and neither does Bentley. Uh, actually, not renowned as a heroic kind of name. Um, so yeah, was that a bit of an odd in retrospect? So, uh, so the name, the name Bentley Bear came even later. So the original name was Bear Braveheart, which I was my, I, I also invented Braveheart. This yeah, look be- at that, three <laughs> yeah. massive IPs that you have created. Fantastic. <laughs> Braveheart. Now, Braveheart, Braveheart does sound like a hero's name. So why didn't you stick with that? Well, it, uh, believe it or not, it was politically incorrect because of the Atlanta Braves. Uh, which still exists, oh, I guess, right. but it was considered potentially offensive to Native Americans. Oh, so wow. uh, and they didn't want to go. They didn't want to uh, offend anybody. You know, if you, if there was a choice, right. if there's a choice, you don't offend. Now, I'm I, yeah. Yeah. I'm not for offending people, but I think some of our listeners might be surprised that as early as 1982, that's it. Um, yeah, there was a certainly an element, you know, a, a woke element, not wanting to uh, to you know culturally appropriate. Uh, now, I'm quite surprised, to be honest. Yeah, in retrospect, I'm kind of surprised that that was happening back then. But it, it was. It, it was talked about, you know, well, the Cleveland Indians. And uh, uh, it, it, it was something people were talking about even way back then. Wow. So wow. we, uh, they had a, it was, that came from the marketing department. They decided uh, we don't really want to have this Bear Braveheart name. Uh, let's have a contest for uh, coming up with a new name. And they had a contest and the winner was Bentley Bear. And I was fine. Okay. I was fine with that. I like Bentley Bear, so it's not not a problem. <laughs> okay. okay, so now you've got the the fairy tale theme, yeah, uh, and the moving trees, uh, like you say. Um, I, one thing that we, we asked it last um, last uh, episode when we talked to Jonathan Hurd in his game Food Fight, we noticed that with Crystal Castles, there's no fire button. There's a jump button, but no fire. 
was being non-violent was was that a, a concern at all was that a conscious thing you tried to do you know in retrospect maybe but i think it was subconscious i didn't really i did i wanted to keep it simple i wanted to keep the game simple kind of like pac-man you know pac-man was such a huge hit and it didn't have a fire button so uh, i thought well let's do something like that also i wanted to appeal to the younger kids oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so keeping it simple non-violent don't shoot things uh it appealed to me and and i kind of stayed with that throughout my entire career i don't think you'll find a single game that i've done that has any kind of violence in it that oh. that would uh, that would offend anybody i, I, I had a yeah i had a little a little bit here and there you know a little bit of shooting <laughs> But uh, nothing, nothing where you have uh, you know machine guns or anything. Yes, yeah, yeah. You didn't do any heart ripping. No, games. no. Yes, I get it. I get it. Okay. Um, one thing, just about that jump button. I was playing Crystal Castles earlier uh, tonight with a trackball. I would like to. Oh, good. Out, okay. On my main cab. Um, it was just. I. It always makes me smile. The jump is just really exaggerated. Um, yes. Was that you must have messed around with that because that that bear can really jump. Why does it why is the jump so big? You know that's funny because uh after the game was released I thought I decided it wasn't big enough and I doubled the height of oh. it. <laughs> Right, well, that's just that's just bonkers, fans. That's just, and that was fun. Right, actually, okay. I like that. No, see, what happened is that's my math background. You know, when when you throw a ball up in the air and it comes back down, it, it the shape of that path is a parabola. Yes, and the uh, math for that is fairly simple. But uh, because the this was done in assembly language and there's no multiplication available, I had to make a uh, table of uh, values for that jump, which I did. So uh, it's, I think 32 values of that just made a perfect parabola. And uh, and then I just threw that in. So I coded that, I threw it in, and I kept it. I just didn't mess with it at all. I didn't, there's no scale factor. It's just whatever okay. happened when I coded it that said, oh, yeah, that's good. I'll keep that. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, it certainly makes it very distinctive. Um, another thing that makes Crystal Castle so distinctive, it, it's full of secrets. There's lots of yeah. ways you can warp to um to later to later levels uh, this was of course all pre mario brothers which yes. sort of you know are is often credited with kind of level warps so i just wondered how that how that came about that that, that kind of level warp secrets thing so what happened there is uh, i was a big fan of tempest at the time tempest was released before ah, that yeah, yeah. and tempest had this level select uh feature where you could yes, you could, the start. You could yes. start uh, at a much higher level and, uh, you know, and the farther you went in the game, the higher you could start in the next game. And mm -hmm. uh, you'd end up getting sucked into playing uh, 30 <laughs> games in a row because you didn't want to lose your level. Yeah. And so that kind of yeah. inspired me. I wanted to have the uh, the good players uh, play at the higher levels right away rather than, uh, you know, suffering through the easy levels, which were not a challenge for them. Okay. So, that, I mean, that's a very sensible choice. But you, you could have just put that on the start screen, like Tempest. The fact that you hid it, that, you know, you have to go through a certain tunnel and jump or go to the back of a level. I just, I think it's great. I just wondered what motivated that kind of secrecy. You know, that one, that one, I, I don't remember where that came from. Uh, I know I did it, but I just, I know I, I did tunnels. Okay, so the, the tunnels came first. Yeah. So where you could go, uh, I think in the, the first, uh, first, right, say, the first level, first, yeah. right, the first level. It's brilliant. Is that just no? A but there's a there's a like a yeah. nice castle level and, and early on that where you can go yeah. underneath 
uh, just sort of a, you go in the tunnel on one side and come out on another side of the castle. And so that was like a, a kind of a hard feature to program. And I, I put that in there. And I, once I had the code for, for having tunnels, then it was pretty easy to uh, just, it just kind of came to me, I guess. That, uh, That's great. I'd like the, the idea of secrets, of course, is means that you can players can share those with other players yes. in the arcade. Did you? And I thought it's that whole idea of having a bit of a gaming culture, being able to talk to them. But I just thought that might have come from the fact that you were a you ha, you hung out in arcades a lot yourself, so you knew that kind of word of mouth thing made things exciting. Yes, and there there were certainly secrets in a lot of games. Some of them unintentional. <laughs> so yeah, that is true. Yeah, that is so true, yeah. the one that comes to mind is the uh, missile command at eight hundred thousand points. Ah, uh, the bug. You have the, the bug, and the bug. whole thing goes bonkers. And so the only way to find that out is uh, to yeah, there's two ways of finding out. You play up to eight hundred thousand yourself, but the easier way is to have somebody tell you, "Hey, play up to eight hundred thousand yeah. and this, this weird thing happened. Yeah, I like, so I think part of with Crystal Castles is that, you know, you were tapping into that idea that, you know, that you, the game exists outside just playing the game. Yeah. You know, there's something about it. I One of the many wonderful things about it. And um, I suppose one of the biggest secrets is that there is actually an ending to the game, which is not something that you normally had in arcade, arcade titles of that era. So... Did you have to fight for that? Yes, unfortunately. So that was, okay. I, I still think this is kind of weird that, that this was a problem for uh, for Atari. But yeah, I had put in the ending and uh, they, the management had, had a fit about that. They did not like that the game had an ending. And the reason is that they got a whole lot of publicity for people playing Asteroids for 28 hours straight. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, <laughs> and however long it was, and so and some of the other games as well, uh, I think Centipede also you could play forever, and so they didn't want to lose that. They didn't want to lose this chance at having this publicity for the really high end players getting uh, playing these marathon games. And I did not like marathon games. I think they no. sort of distort the skill of uh, of players because it rewards players who are simply able to stay awake long enough yes. <laughs> rather than that they have they have really good uh, playing skills. Yeah. So it's just... what, I, what I like, because there is an ending, it means that really good players then go, okay, how can I maximize the points in the in the number of levels that I can play? And I know with um, with Crystal Castles, you know, it's like, do I, is it worth me warping levels to get more bonus points? Or is it better to play through them? It, it, by having an ending, you've actually made people explore the game more which yes. were you conscious of that at the time oh yeah i put a lot of thought into uh, you know how can i make it challenging for the good players to get a high score you know i put in all kinds of things bonus scores that you could get every uh, every time you, if you get to the ending and you have lives built up because you didn't die yeah then you yeah. would get extra points and you get a lot of extra points so um Basically, the way to maximize your score, my thought was the way to maximize your score is you warp up to level eight and then you just play a levels eight and nine as fast as you can. Don't die. Uh, kill as many uh, gem eaters as you can. And uh, and then that, that would give you the high score. And the players there that are way better than me, uh, they did that for years. They, they got 
over 900,000 yes. points, which is ridiculous, um, <laughs> that they were able to do that. And then, to much to my huge surprise, they beat their own high score by not warping to level 8, but playing straight through from the beginning. Ah, and so and then maximizing, you know, optimizing their score all the way through, thereby throwing away the bonus for, mm -hmm. it's a huge bonus score for starting up at level 8. They did. They missed out on that, but they made up for it by um, by playing all the way through. And that all of a sudden, the world record time, instead of being four minutes or whatever, well, five minutes, whatever it was, yeah. uh, it was 40 minutes. So the world record on Crystal Castles is 40 minutes, playing all the way through from the beginning. I just think that, you know, decades later, people are still finding out secrets or ways to maximize their point. It is... It is a gamer's game. Yeah. You should be very proud of yourself. Um, Franz, let's just ask about some of those uh, level designs that you, you've you've mentioned a couple of them, but we love that you mentioned Doomsdome and yeah. Impossible Staircase. I really like Hidden Spiral. Great yeah. titles. Yeah, 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 um, that's, but, that's fun. And um, were they were they all your own work or did or did you get any help? So uh, initially it was all mine and then we went to Field Test and uh, Field Test didn't do so well. Oh. Okay. Uh, it did okay, but it was not good enough to manufacture the game. So um, we uh, said, okay, let's make this game better. And uh, very fortunately, um, I was sort of hooked up with Dave Ralston, who's a, a very good artist. And, uh, and uh, he designed, uh, I think, about four levels. I'm not sure. I think I think four of the levels okay. that uh, he he did a very great job making some interesting levels. Uh, I tweaked some of the uh, other levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, the, the yeah. Dave, Dave kind of drew the levels for me on, on paper. And then I, and, and then I entered the levels with Fortran <laughs> with, yeah, with my, my own way of making the levels. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're certainly on you. I think Dave Ralston worked on Paperboy as well, amongst many other games. Yes. Yes. He was, he was a, involved in a bunch of games and uh yeah and i saw him uh, a couple of, you know just a just a month ago at the reunion he's still around so he's a really, real good guy and one one more thing about those intricate levels is often they've got people's initials in including your own yes. f x l yeah. right on the on the first level was that was that something that was important you to sort of stamp your mark on uh, on the game yes yes so uh i felt right from day one that uh, the uh, creators of the games should get credit and th at that time mm -hmm. uh, credit was not allowed so that's mm -hmm. uh, like a whole uh, other issue really uh but uh, um initials were were fair game so they they said okay you can have your initials and the standard way was to have the default high score yes. default high score table would have initials of the people on the team yes Yes, which yours has got that. Which, yes, yeah. yours has got, yeah. And I've got this huge high score table. Uh, the, I think there's 200 entries in the in the high score <laughs> table for Crystal Castles. And uh, yeah. there's something like, I think I have 32 default initials. I've got a whole bunch of Atari people and some other just friends yeah. and people I know <laughs> are in there oh, so, because I have 32. Most of the games had only had 8 to 10 uh, default high score tables. Uh, the high score tables were. Uh, yes. I did short. notice you put you put your own initials at the top of the high score table. But, um, yeah, well, so yeah, that that was yeah. that was the usual thing that the main guy would would be on. Top. I think you're allowed. Yes, I think you're allowed to sign your work by putting yourself on level one. Yeah, yeah, and at the top of the high. But score some table. of the other levels, uh, I sort of uh, put in, in initials of people 
into the mazes themselves. So there's a yes. BBM, uh, which is Brian McGee, who is the guy who got me the job at Atari. Oh, cool. And then yeah. SSM, uh, Sam Mehta and EDG, and uh, is uh, Eric Jenner. And MAR is Mark Robichek. And, oh, wow. and then DES, which is Desiree McCrory, who uh, is also in right. there. So the, basically, these are the the my friends who I had pizza with every Tuesday. <laughs> I put them in there because I could. <laughs> so. Oh, the Tuesday night pizza <laughs> yeah. have immortalized in crystal castles. Yes, definitely. Hi, friends. Oh, I, I just wanted to follow up on... Paul's last last question. This is a subject that um, continuously comes up on the podcast, um, as you mentioned, the anonymity of programmers back in the day. Yeah, I read um, somewhere that you did actually hide an Easter egg within Crystal Castles that um, said "programmed by friends uh, Lazinger." Yes, only for only for management to to throw a wobbly and get and ask you to remove it. Yes, was it? Uh, I just wonder if it was difficult to work creatively be, behind that kind of iron curtain no i didn't think that was that was difficult that's just the way the way it was uh i tried my best to change a few things Mm. like uh having credits for for people i basically was instrumental in changing the the policy at atari coinot so that um it was then allowed to have a real credits screen okay so while i was still at atari they and in fact in a ROM update for Crystal Castles, there was a credits screen. And all other coin-op games since then have credit screens. Oh, interesting. And it would say, you know, not just program, but, you know, you'd have the art and the engineers. You know, in retrospect, it was, was grossly unfair of me to just have credit for me and not, not nobody else. You know, to have program by Franz Lansing, but to not credit all the other people who were very important for the project as well. And and so the, the real credit screen that was then created uh, sometime after I think it had something like eight people in the, in the credits. So I'll, I still feel like it's my game and I created it, but it's not really true because uh, without all those other people, that game would have never happened. So Of course. And so why was there such paranoia about um, naming yourselves within within the code of the game? Well, I guess it's hard. The, the, the common wisdom on this is, that management was afraid that the people would get hired away to a competitor. And the way to prevent that is to keep the names a secret. Mm. But that really didn't happen, or if it happened, it wasn't very often. So eventually they relented and said, yeah, we're not going to worry about that. Just a small aside there, friends. You mentioned about ROM updates. I'm, I'm curious about how that would work um, from a production point of view. So, you know, version one of the ROM goes down to the factory, they install it on the PCB, build the games and start shipping them. When you guys, for whatever reason, would come up with a revision to the code, at what point would that end up out on the arcade floor? Or would it depend if the production run of the game had finished? or, or, Or could it literally be game 250 onwards or cabinet 250 onwards would would get version two of the ROM or version three or whatever? Well, you know, making ROMs, or actually, I don't remember if it was ROMs or EPROMs. I think they were EPROMs, actually. Because they were EPROMs, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah because Quite ROMs, right. would, there's a two-month delay or something mm-hmm. and that you wouldn't want to wait that long. But yeah, the, uh, the way they did it back then is uh, very occasionally, like maybe six months, a year after the initial release, 
they might, if they felt it was necessary, release an, an updated version of the of the EEPROM, and then they would contact all the customers and tell them, "We have a new version. Please, uh, please install that. We'll send it to you, and you please install it." Right. Um, there was, a, I think, a bug in Crystal Castles, and uh, which I fixed, and then we did a cocktail version, and so the prom EEPROM would support the cocktail version, not just the upright. Mm. So I think the first update was. It, it fixed that bug and it uh, supported cocktail. Got it. And uh, and it was some time after the initial re- release, like yeah, many, many months later. I'm not quite sure about the timing. It's crazy to to think how it was done back then, sort of pre-internet. You know, when you oh when yeah you buy a play yeah, when you no... buy a PlayStation Five game and put the disc in, immediately <laughs> there's like a 20 gig update. It's oh like, god, yeah. Well, what's the what's point? What's the point of having a disc? You have to download the game anyway. So. Right. Absolutely. Um. Of course, one of the enduring legacies of Atari's coin-operated video game division was the glorious artwork that um, adorned many of the cabinets that we see and and, and saw out on on the arcade floor. I will be bold here, um, friends, and I'm not just saying this because um, you happen to be on the show, but I would say that Crystal Castles is arguably one of the most beautiful and eye-catching cabinets ever produced by Atari. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that artwork was created, just in terms of how did the artists who came up with that art convert what they saw on screen to what we as players would see on the side of cabinets, and and, um, and what kind of interaction would, would you have had as the creator of the game in that process? You know, I feel guilty and sad about that situation because I did not interact with them at all. They basically, they saw the game, um, you know, they could play the game and see it. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's it. That's the end of the interaction. They uh, then went and created the the artwork. And it's great, a great, just a great job uh, with that cabinet. And uh, I had little say, you know, I, they didn't ask me whether I liked it. None of that. They just, uh, they just did it. And uh, I did like it, of course. Uh, How could Mm -hmm. I not like that? And uh, that was that was it. So okay. They were in a different building, I think. Right. Okay. Um, your game was released in July 1983 uh, with a price tag of two thousand and ninety-five dollars. We understand. No, um, it's a uh, three thousand. It's two thousand nine hundred. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, wow. I think I think it was three thousand. That's the the number I I remember. Interesting. Okay. They might have dropped uh, the price at some point, so maybe that's where you got your your number. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the document I saw. Um, and and as you mentioned, some five thousand uprights, although my notes say four thousand eight hundred eighty to be precise. Okay. And um and just five hundred cocktail tables were manufactured yeah. and uh, di- distributed. Um. Not to mention, of course, the relatively new concept of conversion kits. Yes. Um, could you tell us about the Crystal Castles conversion kit and what Atari was hoping to achieve by manufacturing 2,000 of those kits? I think at that time they wanted to make as many conversion kits as they could of all the games that were manufactured. You know, mm-hmm. it's just additional sales that they could get that they wouldn't get otherwise. So it wasn't the, the game didn't change. It was uh, simply a way to take an old... Um, Take an old centipede or whatever whatever game it works with and and convert yep. it. Yeah, yeah. There's um I've seen a missile command um converted to crystal castles using using the official kit. It's interesting how 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 that that started cut to come to the fore for Atari, um, presumably driven by what operators were actually doing. So Atari's business model broadly up to that point was based on we'll create a new game, we'll build new cabinets. Operators are going to come to us and continuously buy brand new cabinets, but 
presumably operators had other ideas that they they clearly wanted to sort of save money and turnover. Well, the whole uh, arc, arcade business uh, was this boom and then a bust mm. cycle. And so as, as things were declining, they couldn't really afford to buy brand new cabinets. They were trying to, uh, they certainly weren't expanding their arcades. They, they didn't have room for a new one, new arcade systems. You know, they wanted to use what they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Um, the the game itself, uh, Franz, shared the production line with um, Atari Star Wars, of course, which was released around the same time. Oh, yeah. So it had some healthy competition out there on the arcade floors. I, d- I just wondered if, if you could tell us how, how the game did on release. Well, it was uh, good enough to, to produce it. Uh, um, I, I remember uh, something like $300 a week was uh, was a typical take of a, of a new Crystal Castles game. So... That was pretty good. The you know after uh, I don't know ten weeks you'd have your money back, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, over time the the income would would decline. Mm-hmm. So uh, in general, I think the uh, the per- the people who purchased the game at full price were still pretty happy. They, I don't think they lost money. Mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't really get involved in the business aspect there at all. So I don't really know. Sure, but did did you ever get an opportunity to actually watch? real life players playing your game out in the wild oh that was the best part of the job really so uh the most exciting thing is taking it to field tests for the first time and just standing there in anonymity as people see oh it's a new game i've never seen that i'll try it and you learn a whole lot by just watching uh the the new players who don't know the game at all and uh see how see what they do and there's always feedback from that where we say oh we have to change that because they don't understand this part or that part yeah i was going to ask how how much of that uh feedback and what you observed about the way new players were interacting with the game did you did you take on board and make changes to the um to the program yeah that's a good question i don't it's been so many years i don't remember the details of that i know i did it mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I know i uh, right. i learned from that experience but i don't remember oh they did this and so then i had to make this other change uh, just okay. in general, uh, there was this change of uh, getting Dave Rawson to make more interesting levels. Uh, so okay. there was there was that feedback, but that's about the only one, yep. only one that I remember. So so tweaks rather than something fundamental, right? So there was you know if it's fundamental, you can't. It's too late. You can't really change fundamental things at that point. Mm-hmm. They uh, in general, uh, it was uh, well received, and there was. Uh, the thing you want to look for is when the players uh, start putting their quarters onto the cabinet to stand in line to play the game. So that was, which was in those days, that was the common way to do it. And yeah, uh, indeed, if yeah, a really good game would have fifty quarters in a row, you know, people would wait um, a long time to, to play the game. Um. So moving on from Crystal Castles, friends, something we were we were keen to ask you about is uh, the unreleased Gremlins game. Oh yes. Um, so this was a title we understand you worked on. I, I wonder if you can tell us how that how that project came about once uh, Crystal Castles was done and dusted and out the door. Well, the uh, management came to me and said, "Hey, Steven Spielberg is making a movie. Do you want to do the game?" <laughs> I didn't really have to. There's I didn't a question. really have to say no any more than that, you know. <laughs> so, okay. Oh, but they they gave me the script of the movie, and I read the script before it was before it was even filmed. I I think they were in the middle of filming at that point. Okay. And soon after, I 
I took a trip down to LA and saw uh, the, the stage where they were filming and I got to meet Steven Spielberg. So that was really exciting. Oh, I mean, Spielberg was quite the gamer, wasn't he? And he had previous history with Atari, um, particularly the home division, more so than the coin-op division. Yeah, the, the, the ET situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, so how did your conversation with him go? Was it was it, was it it just a sort of general shake of the hand and a, and a chit-chat or... or or did you talk specifics about this proposed game? I don't remember, unfortunately. It's <laughs> uh, I was starstruck, of course, seeing I had never met anybody famous before, literally. So, uh, yeah. So I think he just talked about the movie. I talked about Crystal Castles, and that was pretty much it. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was watching some of the footage um, that's on, on YouTube of yeah. Gremlins, um, and I noticed a distinct similarity to Crystal Castles, and and that's the, the isometric viewpoint yeah. of the game. Yeah. Was it always your intention to, to work to that style, to sort of bring what you'd learned programming Crystal Castles to, to Gremlins? Or coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence. I, I just felt that that was uh, a more realistic view of uh, it, it. Looked better to me to have a, a mm-hmm. isometric view than a than just a two D top down or side view. Side view. Mm-hmm. This is before all those great two D games that that you know, like Mario. You know, it's just. I guess I didn't really think about it very long. I thought, oh yeah, I've got to continue to have uh, an isometric view. Sure. And the game ended up on the on the cutting room floor, yes. so to speak. Um, Franz, I, I wonder if you could tell us why why it was never released. Well, that's kind of an unfortunate story. So I got upset at Atari for a number of reasons, and I quit. I rage quit. If there's a there's a new word for this, I rage quit my job <laughs> and stormed out. And uh, right in the middle of uh, the Gremlins game uh, development. Wow, and uh, I didn't really think very hard about the future of what would happen to the Gremlins project. Um, mm. But it went on for another year or so after I left because uh, Kelly Turner, who was second programmer, there's two programmers on this game, which was a, kind of a new thing for me. Um, he was like my assistant programmer. He took over, a very good guy. He uh, took it where you know he wanted to take it. I never saw anything after that. You know, after I left Atari. I, Lost all my access. I want to. Yeah. Sorry to cut in here, actually, Tony and Franz, but yeah. I want to. I want to dig down into that. I want to know more. What? Why did you rage quit Atari, Franz? Um, would you care to go into that, or is it? Or is it? Sure. Um, no, I can talk about that. So uh, I felt it was. Uh, I felt it would be only fair to get a royalty on the games that the developers work on. Yeah, and that was sort of naive of me. But uh, on top of that, I wanted the royalty plan to be in writing rather than uh, a what it was. What they had was a bonus plan that was completely at the discretion of management. So they could pay bonuses and not pay bonuses, totally up to them. And the bonuses were based on a percentage of sales. And sometimes the bonuses were quite large. Um, mm. But uh, I felt that that wasn't, that wasn't good. Uh, especially, I had these dreams that Crystal Castles would sell large quantities in the home market. And I wanted to see that, uh, you know, I would get some kind of a royalty on, on the home sales. And they uh, they simply refused. They said, no, you know, from their viewpoint, they saw the end of the, they saw the end of their boom years uh, coming. And so they didn't want to promise uh, money to programmers that they might not even have, you know. So mm. it was. Okay. So they were like, "Yeah, nice idea, friends, but uh, yeah, we can't. Not going to do that." And they weren't going to. They weren't going to tell me. 
they, they weren't going to say, oh, <laughs> our business is collapsing. So that's why we can't do that. They didn't, they never said yeah. that, of course. And so it's just kind of unfortunate mm-hmm. timing mm-hmm. and me being young and foolish. Um, and so that, that was the end of it. You know, basically I, I came in and I said, I demanded this and they said, no, you can't have that. Goodbye. <laughs> so, well, it, I mean, this must have been a subject you, you felt passionately about, uh, friends. Yeah. I mean, walking away from, you know, one of your babies effectively, um, that must've been quite the decision. Yes. Or, Maybe you you were just seeing red mist. Yeah, and... it was uh, no, I was uh, young. I was I wasn't that young. I was twenty seven years old. But uh, it was mm-hmm. uh, actually no. How old was I? I was twenty nine years old. So that's that's not all that young. But I still I was very naive. I didn't know anything about business or how things work mm-hmm. or any of that. So uh, you know, looking forward, I in my career, I learned a lot uh, having started two gaming companies later on and uh, learning what it's really all about, which is uh, trying to make survive trying to survive as a company trying to make money yeah and i didn't know very much about any of that so mm. in retrospect uh i regret that i left definitely okay but there's a there's that's, a that's in another from another viewpoint though if i hadn't left i would not have met my wife who i'm still married to after 30 some years so <laughs> in from that perspective yeah. i'm very glad i left <laughs> so. you old romantic <laughs> yes yes right <laughs> what's that film sliding doors right you know you 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 either go left or you or you go right oh yeah right it affects the whole of your life well i mean these were challenging times of course for atari at the time um friends and of course the industry as a whole i um noticed on your website you recently published an excerpt from your diary yes dated april 1984 um which reads uh, we are pretty worried about the video game market collapsing. Yeah. It looks pretty bad yeah. right now. Home games don't sell. Coin-op games don't sell. What do we do next? So I I just wonder, I mean, the, the Gremlins um, incident aside, I mean, I wonder if you can tell us what was going on at the time and what the view was like from your desk in the coin-operated division of Atari. Well, um, so when I started at Atari the feeling was very, very optimistic and it was sort of expected that your coin-op game, if it was a success, it would sell 50,000 units because that's how many centipedes they sold. That's, and they mm-hmm. sold asteroids much more than that, Tempest. So mm-hmm. some, a lot of these games sold you know, in the tens of thousands of units. And then you just calculate that out, what the bonus plan would uh, bring you. And it was huge amounts of money. People were looking forward to getting hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, and so that's a big carrot, especially in those days when a new house costs $80,000. So <laughs> right. it was, uh, you know, a very, you know, a very tempting thing to uh, to hope for that, you know, hope for the big sales. And, and then two years later, the, the sales were obviously not there. Only 5,000 copies, only 5,000 units of Crystal Castles, which uh, nowadays that sounds like a big number, but in those days that was a disappointment. Yeah, And that wasn't really the fault of the game so much as the whole market was just collapsing. And I I didn't know how bad it was going to be, and I had no idea that Atari would basically uh, shut down and sell itself off to the Tremils, and I didn't know any of that was going to happen. If I had known, I would have stayed on and let them lay me off. And I would have been much better off uh, financially. Mm-hmm. Sure. But when you, uh, one of the things that happens when you resign, when you quit uh, your job there, you are no longer eligible for any bonus money. So uh, all I had to do is stay and I would have gotten a bunch more bonus money. But 
I didn't see any of that because uh, because I resigned. People who resign don't get bonuses. So, <laughs> and, and 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 least of all, you, what you don't like the most is being reminded of it. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah, that's, sorry, that's, I no, do no, 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 you don't. No, don't apologize. Yeah, shut up, Rich. No, no, no I, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. it it's uh, it's life, you know. Uh, we we learn from our mistakes. Yeah, of course, sure. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. Well, you, um, Tony, have you got a rom com you can reference for that? No, I haven't. I'll, <laughs> I'll think of one. Come at you, um, uh, friends. Of, of course, you did um, come back a few years later to have a second bite of the video game cherry. Yeah. Um, you you returned to uh, Tengen. Yes. To to work on home versions of arcade games like Miss Pac Man and 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 Rampart. Just just kind of wonder how, how that was different sort of vibe-wise to working at Atari on coin-operated games. Well, the big thing is that these were not original games. So they, they were, um, you know, they were conversions. Now, in those days, a conversion from arcade to NES was almost like making a brand new game because the NES was nowhere near as capable as the hardware on the, on the arcade games. So the first, my first project there was Tubin, mm-hmm. and if you compare what Tubin on the NES looks like versus Tubin on the arcade, it's like night and days. There's a, the arcade version has much much better graphics and uh, just a, it's a whole different uh, game really. Mm. Uh, kind of strikes me as more of a more of a sort of functional um, job than a creative job. Well, yes and yes and no. It, it was, uh, you know, nowadays you make a conversion from, I don't know, uh, PlayStation four to PlayStation five or something. Uh, mm. that's, that's, uh, not all that creative because you're just basically improving the graphics and maybe have new sounds or what, but you don't change the game. Uh, but mm. with, uh, like Tubin for the NES, it's a brand new game. There's a whole lot of different gameplay elements in there compared to the original. We just kind of took the gameplay right. and kept that, you know, the controls of the guy in the inner tube and uh, the way he throws cans at things. That that we kept, but the, the layout of the levels was brand new. The, uh, okay. the music was not brand new, but certainly different. So, uh, and just the whole structure of the game was different. So it, it was certainly creative... Uh, but on the other hand, you are limited to what the original game is. You know, you can't you can't stray too far from it. And, and uh, did it feel good to be back, friends? Yes. Do we, do we, were, you, were you sort of feeling it again in your bones? And, and well, so well, what happened? So this is uh, there's five years in between. So from 1984, when I quit Atari, and 1989, I started attending. So in the five years in between, I went back to my uh, original company that I worked at before Atari, and continued to work on uh, research projects and supporting research projects and coding in uh, higher level languages than assembly. I went, <laughs> I went back from assembly to Lisp and uh, I programmed in, um, God, what else? And C of course. So it, it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of a different experience uh, that, that work. And then I got excited about the Atari ST and Ended up becoming in. I quit my job again at uh, in 1986 or so, and uh, bought an Atari ST and started to do independent development of uh, on the ST, which ended up going nowhere. But but I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> cool. Of course, your legacy and 
uh, obviously of, of relevance to the podcast here, Franz, is of course the much loved Crystal Castles. I just, I just wonder if if you own your own Crystal Castles cabinet today. Yes, I do. It's the only arcade Fantastic. machine that I own, and it's sitting in my garage, and it still works, and it's in pretty good, pretty good shape. And it's actually a collector's item because it has slightly different artwork on the outside. It was, I think the graphics for Bentley Bear is slightly different. Okay. It's fairly minor. It's, it's, it looks like, you know, if you, if you're not carefully looking at it, there, there are minor differences because it was a prototype. Ah, cool. Yeah, you, Tony has got this nose to smell out any rare cabs in people's garages. So you might want to check it still there <laughs> oh, after, oh. He's been over, after he's been over to America. Well, I, I almost I almost <laughs> sold it, but my wife talked me out of it, so I still have it. Nah, that's good of her. Yeah, you should hang on yeah, to that you, for sure. But Tony does have your IP address and therefore doesn't know where <laughs> yeah. you are. So. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, wait a minute. We have your address. Yeah, can, what am I talking do, about? You have, you have my yeah, come on over, take a look. I also wanted to mention we have met Mark Alpiger oh, a yes. few times over the years, who is of course um, a master at uh, Crystal Castles. You, you've you've met Mark. I just wonder what it's like for you to watch somebody like Mark completely dominate your game that you programmed. Well, that's uh, the ultimate success for me. I think to to create a game. That somebody else can uh, can take to in in different directions and that I never anticipated, mm. and it still holds up and still fun that way. So, mm. so that's that's great. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm in contact with with Mark. I, we we've been in contact ever since the '80s. So uh, so it's right. uh, he's he's great. He he really uh, just discovered things about that game I never knew were there. <laughs> so it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Can you can you keep up with him score wise? Oh no no not at all. Right. Uh, my high score is something like eight thirty, which I can't do anymore. I can't even get to the end anymore. But uh, but his score is in is uh, eight ninety or nine hundred somewhere in there. So it's that right. doesn't sound like much more, but believe me, it's much much harder to get up there than than eight thirty. Eight thirty is not that difficult. Yeah, to squeeze those extra points out. Uh, yeah. To, uh, towards the end. Um, but can you play with your feet? You know, I've never tried, and uh, I think one of these days <laughs> I, I need to try it to see what I can do. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, maybe it's the answer to yeah, that, know, that, Im- improve your game. That would be no. That would be no mean feat. Oh, <laughs> oh God. bad! Oh, You're gonna geez. have to. You Please have cut. To, you put your foot in it. Please. Oh, you need to cut that out. Um, yeah, I yeah. want to ask: Is that do you abbreviate? Because Alpig Mark makes this big thing about abbreviating. Like I don't call it Crystal Castles; I call it Crystal. Does anyone do that apart from him? You know, that game is such a big part of his life. He had to abbreviate it <laughs> just because, you know, we people do that when when something is dominates their life that they'll use they'll use nicknames. But no, I, I don't, remember I, Mark's. Uh, I always remember Mark's glove. He used to oh, every time. Yeah, you got, he used to always, always have this uh, fingerless glove. Oh, the black glove. Get, yeah, you gotta have. You gotta have. Yeah, you know, it'll wear down. Wear a, so you don't get pinches on your hands if you don't wear the glove. Right. Do you want? Do you want to explain that for our listeners, Tony? Yeah. So one of one of the um, perils of playing a trackball-based game like Crystal Castles or, or Missile Command is there is a chance to 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 pinch your skin as you're rolling the trackball enthusiastically. So. Mark would have a fingerless leather glove on his right hand <laughs> so that he could, you know, kind of roll 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 the trackball vigorously without without catching his skin between the trackball and, and the control panel. So Yeah. yeah. And he wore it's it my, with pride. It's my endearing memory of Mark. I haven't seen him for many years, but I, I 
just yeah. if I picture Mark, I picture him with his with his fingerless glove and his and his and his shoes and <laughs> well, socks. Well, you know, it, <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's a serious yeah. sport, and it's like uh, golfers wear gloves and bowlers wear gloves, and so that's so why not nothing un, not, nothing unusual yeah, yeah. there. Murderers yeah. wear gloves as well. But okay, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. France, France, are you aware of? Uh, Canadian electro punk slash electro clash band Crystal Castles taking their name from your from uh, your game. Great band. Were you aware of that? Um, that yeah. Band? So so many years ago, I think twenty years ago, I I found out about them, and they at the time claimed that they did not know about the video game, and they took the yeah whatever, and they took the name. No, they took the name from uh, some fantasy character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and well, uh, I I tend to believe it. I I. I don't see why they would. Mm. Why would they do that and risk getting sued by Atari? There is a there's, there's a band out there called Missile Command. Really? Well. <laughs> yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, uh, friends, it's been a real pleasure. Um, oh, thank uh, you so much for uh, sharing your story with us. Sure. Uh, and um, uh, you know, yeah. keep on keep rolling the, those trackballs. Yes, I will. I will. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you for inviting me. Can I just say um, I love that image of you sitting round the longer Tory table in 1982 with your Ed Rotberg's Ed Logs and Dave Toy and then you know only this year 40 years later there you are again what a company that can bring people you know to still be friends after all those years yeah yeah it's it's great um certainly the best job I ever had so I'm glad to reminisce about it thank you it's been fascinating and um thank you also for the um the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, impersonation at the top, oh. <laughs> which I may or may not uh, clip and pop in somewhere along the line for our, for our listeners' pleasure. Sure, we'll see sure. what happens. You've got to now. Um, but but thank you. It's been we say this all the time, but it's been an honour. Thank you for joining us. Great stuff. Okay, thank you guys. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast with me, Richard May. Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Excellent. And then one, but in the style of Big Bird from Sesame Street. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. One, one more take, friend. Uh, I can do it in, the, in an Arnold Schwarzenegger accent. I, 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 you know, I, I wasn't going to go there, friends, but you've, you've done it. So like, who is your daddy and what does he do? <laughs> yes to Arnie. I'm going to do it. Hi, I'm Franz Lanzinger, programmer of Atari's Crystal Castles. And you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast. <laughs> Get to the chopper. <laughs> Put that on at the end. You want it normal or no? No. 